0: Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth here with you. John Vecchioni is not with us uh, today. He is uh, standing up for truth, justice, and the American way at an oral argument in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati, and I'm sure we'll hear more from him about that on the next program. Uh, But but today I want to talk about a, a petition for a writ of certiorari that NCLA just filed uh, this past week in the US Supreme Court. And in fact, John was the counsel uh, of record uh, in this case. So uh, so he may have something to say about this uh, in the future as well. But I wanted to go ahead and let our listeners uh, know about uh, this case, because I think there's several interesting uh, things to share with you uh, about it. The, the name of the case is Relentless Inc., the US Department of Commerce at Al. And the New Civil Liberties Alliance represents uh, Relentless, uh, and uh, and Relentless Inc., Huntress Inc., and Sea Freeze Fleet LLC. These are fishing companies uh, that own fishing vessels that fish in the North Atlantic for uh, herring, as well as mackerel, butterfish, and Loligo and Ilex squids. And the particular regulation that is at issue in this case has to do with uh, herring uh, fisheries, and the The rule that was uh, promulgated by the National Marine Fisheries Service, which is uh, underneath the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, it's uh, sometimes referred to as NOAA Fisheries, and these are both underneath the U.S. Department of Commerce. Uh, The rule that was promulgated requires uh, these uh, fishing companies, these vessels, to pay for at-sea monitors. That's A-T-S-E-A, at-sea monitors. Uh, to be on uh, the the vessel uh, periodically, not full time, not all the time, but uh, uh, but they can uh, show up at any time and if they do, you have to you have to berth them uh, on the on the ship and give them space uh, to do their work. So it'd be a little bit like uh, the government uh, saying that you have to uh, let the state trooper ride shotgun with you down the highway to check on your speed. I mean that's a little, a little, and not, not only that, but you have to pay for it. Uh, you have to pay his salary while he's doing it. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure that very many drivers would like that. But that's the situation that the uh, that these fishing companies uh, find themselves in. And <clears throat> the particular uh, objection here is that uh, Congress did not give the agency the ability to write this kind of rule, or at least that's the claim. And The U.S. uh, Court of Appeals for the First Circuit uh, found otherwise, Uh, it sided with the agencies in support of this rule, and in so doing, uh, relied heavily on, and you've heard it on this program before, Chevron deference. And you'll recall that Chevron deference is the judicially invented doctrine in a Supreme Court case from 1984, Chevron v. Uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, where the Supreme Court decided, uh, and and really, if you go back and read Chevron itself, it's not completely in there. But over time, as the doctrine developed, what Chevron says is that federal judges, if a statute is ambiguous, have to defer to a federal agency's reasonable interpretation of that statute. And unfortunately, what the First Circuit, and it's not alone in this, other circuits have done it as well, uh, has said is that, well, that when when there's a gap in the statute, in other words, the the statute doesn't speak to this at all, then that counts as an ambiguity and that that's enough of of an ambiguity for the court then to defer to the agency's interpretation. Well, the problem is with a statute uh, like the one at at, at issue here, which is called the Magnuson-Stevens Act, there's a lot of detail. I mean, Congress went to a lot of effort in this statute, specified a lot of things that the agency uh, can and and cannot do. And one of the things that they uh, have specified uh, is uh, to have you know, some, some observers on these ships that would be paid for by the government. And then in certain other fisheries, not the North Atlantic herring fishery, but certain other fisheries, particularly in the Pacific Ocean, where you have some much higher margin, which I mean, more profitable, uh, you know, sort of catches that you can go for, whether it's Alaskan king crab or, or what have you, uh, that in those circumstances, Congress has specified uh, that in, in some cases that you can charge vessels for certain kinds of kinds of things. But they haven't done that in the Atlantic herring uh, market. And so the agency was uh, disappointed in the level of funding that Congress uh, made available in order to pay for these at-sea monitors. And they said, hey, we've got a good idea. We'll just make the boats pay for it. Well, the problem is if 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 you allow the agencies, if you allow the regulators to decide how much regulation to do, they they have an incentive to overregulate. They have an incentive to say, well, you know, rather than let Congress dictate this by the size of our budget, we'll just we'll just create work for ourselves. We'll augment our own budget by uh, by charging it directly through uh, to the regulated parties. And you know, even if Congress had said that's okay. I can imagine other concerns with that, but the primary problem in this case is Congress never said that the uh, agency can do that. And in fact, uh, the D.C. Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, in another case called Loper Bright, had reached the same conclusion as the First Circuit that uh, that the statute Magnuson and Stevens Act uh, did allow uh, the agency to do this kind of a final rule. But importantly, and we've talked about this on the program before, the United States Supreme Court granted cert uh, in the Loper Bright case to look at this question of whether or not uh, Chevron deference should apply in this to this kind of ambiguity, to this sort of gap in the statute. And, and even the Supreme Court, in granting the question, said that there, that there could also be looking at the question of whether to just overturn Chevron entirely and do away with Chevron deference. And so, the particular cert petition that uh, NCLA has filed on behalf of Relentless is interested in that same uh, issue, uh, the, the overturning Chevron deference. That's obviously something NCLA has been interested in from day one. Our founder, Philip Hamburger, is one of the uh, foremost acknowledged authorities in the nation on the problems with Chevron deference. He wrote an excellent article in the George Washington Law Review called Chevron Bias that spells out. Two core problems uh, with Chevron deference. First, when a federal judge defers to an agency's interpretation of law, it's denying due process of law to the entity in the litigation that's opposed to the government. So imagine you go in front of a judge, and the judge says, "Rather than 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 me tell you what I think the law means, I'm going to defer to your opponent's interpretation of the law." Well, that. That, that doesn't seem like due process, that doesn't seem like a fair trial, that doesn't seem like a fair shake that you're getting from the court, uh, So that and it's not. That's why it seems that way, because it's not fair, and we call that a de- denial of due process uh, of law. At the same time, employing such a deference abandons the actual office of a judge. The duty of judging is the duty of judicial independence. The Constitution goes to great lengths and uh, and and I think we've run through those on the program before. I won't do it today, but there are multiple ways. It's not just life tenure. It's not just uh, not reducing the salary of judges. There are multiple ways in which judges are insulated. Uh, Article three judges are insulated and, and their independence is preserved precisely so that they can provide their independent judicial judgment about the meaning of the law. And if instead of doing that, they defer to an executive branch officials or an executive agency's interpretation of a statute, then you're no longer getting the benefit of Article Three judicial independence. So that's the other problem with Chevron deference is that it undermines this uh, judicial independence. Well, I, I don't think Chevron deference can withstand this devastating dual critique, uh, and that's why uh, it's certainly my hope that the Supreme Court will grant cert in Relentless as well, and will permit the New Civil Liberties Alliance to argue. Uh, the case alongside uh, Loper Bright. But even if the court does not grant cert in Relentless, I would still anticipate that the court will decide the Chevron question in Loper Bright's favor, and then it would grant, they call it grant vacate and remand, GVR. They would grant cert in our case after having already decided Loper Bright, they would grant it, they would vacate what the First Circuit did in our case, and then they would send it back to the First Circuit and say, take another look given that you know Chevron deference doesn't come into play. Uh, anymore, so you know that would be uh, that would be uh, terrific if that would happen uh, as well. But obviously, we would like to be involved uh, at the Supreme Court and and uh, uh, and and make our arguments as to why Chevron deference is a problem. We also asked the court to take a look at a second question, uh, and really, this is to resolve a split uh, between the courts of appeals on the meaning of one particular aspect of the. Uh, Magnuson-Stevens Act. And that's, uh, the question is whether the phrase, quote, necessary and appropriate, unquote, in that act, augments agency power to force domestic fishing vessels to contract with and pay the salaries of federal observers they must carry. So what happened in the the First Circuit and in, in district court is that this necessary and appropriate phrase was given a pretty broad reading by the court such that they decided that that kind of broad, vague language empowered the agency uh, to come up with the regulation that it did. And uh, you know that's not our view. Our view that language is way too uh, nonspecific in order to have empowered the agency to self-fund essentially with this at-sea monitor rule uh, that it came up with. And we would like for uh, the court to weigh in on that as well, because Uh, the Fifth Circuit in another case on a different rule, uh, looking at that same language about necessary and appropriate, did not think that that language was broad enough to authorize the rule there. So there is this conflicting treatment of key MSA language uh, that we think uh, the court uh, could take a look at uh, as well. But uh, in any event, when the Supreme Court decides the question presented in Loper Bright, it must confront the two central problems with Chevron Deference I mentioned, and hopefully they will do that regardless of whether they grant Vert in Relentless. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Uh, Mark Genoeth uh, here, and I am joined uh, by my longtime colleague at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, Senior Litigation counsel Peggy Little. Peggy, welcome back to Administrative Static. Thank you, Mark. So you and uh, and Russ Ryan were on the program last week uh, talking about this really amazing uh, you know thing that the SEC has done dismissing dozens of cases due to the widespread agency uh, misconduct uh, that took place. Uh, at the at the SEC where there were people on the prosecution side of the agency taking a peek at some of the papers that were being produced over on the adjudicative side of the agency. and we talked about the fact that this couldn't happen if these two functions weren't housed in the same you know in the same entity and that's just a structural problem that needs to needs to be uh, gotten rid of uh, in the administrative adjudication process put these cases back in Article Three courts. But there's something else has happened here in the last week you and I were talking about, which is it really seems like the SEC is eager not to have anyone take a closer look at what they had been doing here with this so-called uh, control deficiency.
1: That's true, Mark. I mean, the fear has always been when you have the judge and the prosecution in the same um, office and subject to employment by the same agency that there will be undue uh, bias and influence, and the control deficiency, which the SEC- That's their term, by the way. (laughs) Which means just the kind of file sharing you were talking about. That was disclosed over a year ago with formal filings in the U.S. Supreme Court, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, and also in our client, Michelle Cochran's district court case, this was deeply troubling, and so NCLA immediately filed FOIA requests. And,
0: and that's the Freedom of Information Act for anyone who doesn't know uh, FOIA.
1: Which uh, this SEC is totally subject to, and uh, we want they to- They don't do... get
0: any national security exemptions over <laughs> at the SEC.
1: <laughs> well, they think they get some kind of exemption because <laughs> it's been over a year, and we have literally nothing from them other than a redacted contract for the vendor- um, they were going to hire to do an internal report. I like to um, compare this to a person getting pulled over for speeding, and they turn to the cop and they say, well, thank you very much, officer. I'll look into this and let you know if I find anything. That's right.
0: I'll get back <laughs> to you whether I was speeding or not, uh, but don't you worry about it.
1: Yeah, and, and, and moreover, the the company, uh, the, the SEC, hired to do this um, investigation investigation, is a vendor that does millions of dollars of business with the SEC as its expert witness and doing other tasks. So there's no possible way that is an independent outside investigation.
0: Smells like a conflict of interest. I'm I'm just imagining the SEC's uh, reaction if a company tried that stunt of saying, well, we're going to investigate our own conduct and we're going to hire this vendor who gets millions of dollars from us for other things that it does. And and they'll give you, SEC, an independent reading of whether what we did was fine and and I'm sure you'll just take their word for it.
1: Funny you should mention that. I have just done re- legal research on examples of where the SEC did exactly that to private companies and heaped penalties upon them for those sorts of conflicts of interest. So um, we the, we got nothing under FOIA. And so um, in the two cases where this uh, Um, file sharing was disclosed. One of them is our case, Cochran, and the other one is a very important case called Jarcusy. Still Um, pending
0: at the Supreme Court, whether they're going to grant cert or not, I believe.
1: Correct. Uh, But Jarcusy at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals was a very uh, milestone decision uh, holding that administrative adjudication is essentially unconstitutional for three separate reasons. So that was a big case, big holding.
0: Including lack of jury trial rights.
1: Absolutely. And they were in fact, file sharing in that file as well. So Jarcusy's counsel, um, well, first of all, we filed um, a district court action in the D.C. Circuit to get the SEC files that they were not producing under FOIA. And Jarcusy's counsel also filed a FOIA enforcement action in the Galveston uh, Superior court um, District Court. And <laughs> the uh, recent... Um, FOIA developments just this week in both cases are pretty fascinating. I I call this the SEC puts itself on moot, (laughs) (laughs) and I mean moot and mute. Yeah. um, In that it's it's essentially trying to silence any kind of inquiry into its conduct. In our case, in the DC Circuit, we received just a couple of days ago a communication saying, "Well, they." dismissed all these cases and they disclosed a report about it. Therefore um, there's nothing further to be disclosed.
0: Well, the reports that we handed, the reports that we produced publicly answer all of the questions that you asked, or that's what they want to have you believe.
1: But that is not how FOIA works. In fact, it's expressly not how FOIA works under FOIA. You can't ask the agency to create a document. Hmm. They have to turn over the, the base documents, that are relevant to the file sharing, um, and, and it's, it's longstanding for, uh, FOIA law that we can't ask them to create a report. We only get the base documents, emails that are share- shared. Who discovered the control deficiency? Was it a whistleblower? How was that handled? Why was it not turned over to the inspector general as something this important should be? And we know that that should be so because Congress specifically held a hearing on the control deficiency and directly asked the deputy director of the SEC why the S- the IG had not been contacted.
0: Yeah, and and my question would be if I were on that panel, uh, and, and if the IG has more important things it's looking into, what the heck are those? Because this sounds really, really severe, and I would be surprised if this didn't make the... Uh, the top of the list for uh, for internal investigation at the SEC.
1: I think it makes the top of the list of what the SEC is profoundly uncomfortable with having anyone look into. Yeah. So in our DC action, what they uh, ask us to do is, is say that their report satisfied all of our requests. And that's nonsense, both legally and factually.
0: Yeah, nonsense it, on stilts, you might say.
1: <laughs> indeed. And in the uh, Galveston action, they pulled a stunt that's even... More baseless, which was that during the pendency of that court proceeding, the SEC closed the FOIA request, so they're under no duties to respond. Wait, wait,
0: wait. Let me let me just make sure that people are following the ball here. So they said that even though you have sued us over our non-compliance with your FOIA request, we have closed your FOIA request while this litigation is pending, and therefore. There's nothing else to share with you because we closed your request.
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: that's <laughs> yeah. The, okay. I'm not sure that a federal district judge is going to be amused by that.
1: I'm actually told this federal district judge in Galveston is not going to like that one bit. But this uh, kind of behavior and it, it it is inexcusable and lawless. Just shows that there must be something terribly um, important that they are hiding, yeah. and that they are willing to take these. Uh, very unsupported legal positions to keep this from public view
0: or to at least drag it out and try to delay whatever the bad news is that's that's underlying
1: which this. is yeah which is terrible because you know, they they uh, disclosed this over a year ago
0: and, at, I, and i assume they fired all the people who were involved with I, this well, with this misconduct
1: well maybe just to silence them who knows <laughs> but,
0: but we're not aware of anybody's head having rolled over this
1: no but more importantly it was very important to Michelle Cochran's case to know what went on. That is, that is fundamentally uh, relevant to her claims that the, these proceedings are unconstitutional because of their bias. Yeah. And same thing with Jarcusi. Um, The file sharing is directly relevant to an open case and what the SEC's tactic has done. Because if, if your listeners remember last week, they tossed out Michelle's case. And so her case is now technically closed, and so we will never know.
0: And they're and they're trying to say that that it's closed, and so she no longer has standing, essentially, right. to inquire into what happened.
1: Not only she, but 42 other people uh, directly affected, and then there were also people who had their bars uh, lifted. So the SEC has engaged in an unprecedented mass. Um, nullification, essentially, of a lot of its proceedings. And it must be dreadfully in in fear of what might be disclosed if those facts came out in an open proceeding, as they should.
0: As they must. I mean, really, I, I, I struggle to think of other possible explanations. I mean, you could, I suppose it could be the case that, I mean, what they said when they put out the report is that they were trying to conserve resources. And it could just be that the agency Wanted to wash its hands of all this and sort of start over from, you know, with a fresh, fresh slate. Okay, fine. But you don't get to do that if you don't fully reveal everything that you did wrong before. And it's not for you to decide whether you get to start over with a clean slate. At least Congress needs to be fully informed of all of the malfeasance that took place, because it might want to make some changes to how the agency is going about its business before it starts with the clean slate.
1: Right. And so what they've done is nullified Michelle Cochran's ability to get discovery in a lawsuit about what happened, which would be far more efficient than the FOIA request, which keeps being delayed. Uh, And so she's- Well,
0: more efficient because you have a federal judge who can direct the agency to comply immediately with discovery requests.
1: Precisely. So she, Michelle Cochran has been denied the ability to have evidence in her case. There's other kinds of line drawing that the SEC has done. In that report uh, that its vendor helped it create, they also say that these uh, remedies are be only being done in open cases. Well, so they have drawn, we're fairly certain because of the timing that the initial disclosure talked about, that the file sharing occurred in both open and what are now closed cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the SEC is um, drawing a line there in, t- in terms of right. who even has the ability to get information and all of the people who may have had a final decision. or settlement. And, well, yeah, but, uh, but think about the final decision that was affected by that kind of sure. file sharing. Pa-
0: paid a fine or whatever.
1: Exactly, or a person who settled not knowing Although the SEC would have known that there had then been this kind of improper file sharing, well, they don't get to decide who uh, gets the benefit of um, that information and how that will play out legally. Yeah, but that's wow. what they have attempted to do here.
0: They sure have. It's very arbitrary. And thank you for bringing it to uh, to the attention of listeners here at Administrative Static. Good luck with your ongoing uh, FOIA requests. Thank
1: you. I'll be up. <laughs>